Good morning, Spiritual Charlotte. This is Kendall. I am coming to you with our last uh, show for the month of June. Debbie Chisholm, my wonderful co-host, is not joining me today because what I'm going to be doing today is sharing with you a story that I had the opportunity to share at Inclusion Community Church, which is located in Cornelius, which is located in Lake Norman, just north of Charlotte. So as some of you know who listen to our show, Inclusion Community is a home base for me. It's a very progressive, tiny little intimate church that has been in um, the Lake Norman area for about seven years, seven or eight years. And um, we just kind of live in the questions over there. Um, our pastor, Susan Hefner Hewn, has been on the Spiritual Charlotte podcast, um, and she will be back again as we are doing this series with her, Walking Through the Christian Calendar. So um, for those of you who listen to the show, you know that I have a very open spirituality, and that reflects the mission of Spiritual Charlotte, which is that we can come together and have community conversation and make connection um, and really talk about things that we might not be able to talk about in other places and explore God, the big, huge, um, universal energy that is the divine um, in a way where we are not limited. But having said that, I uh, find family in this community and so it remains a home base for me even as Debbie Chisholm and I um, open the doors to our own spiritual center in Mooresville on July 1, which is actually just a few days away. So um, before I launch into this story that I was asked to share at Inclusion Community, um, let me give you a little information about Lighthouse Spiritual Center. Um, Lighthouse Spiritual Center is a 20-year dream that is coming to reality and so um, my co-host Debbie and I will be opening like I said July 1 and it's really a center where we are exploring personal development and spiritual development um, in the context of classes programs workshops retreats um, and there's just a whole lot going on there. It's a very comprehensive place. So that's in old downtown Mooresville. Um, you can learn more about that at lighthousespiritualcenter.com. We also have space there that we are um, opening to the community. So anybody who does spiritual work in our community or work in the field of personal development, um, should get in touch with us. You can email us on our website. There are some long-term spaces available there and also spaces for all of your wonderful classes and workshops and programs. And so um, we're off to the races. So I did want to just squeeze in the show in the middle of this amazing birth um, of this lifelong dream. Um, because it is, has been really stressful <laughs> and we are in the throes of all the things that happen when you open up a brick and mortar business. So 
all the tactical things and all the um, very real things um, that are different from whenever you have a home-based business, which both Debbie and I have had um, diff two different home-based businesses for years, for, for a couple years each. Um, so I'm going to leave you with that. And then what I'm now going to do is share the story that I shared at Inclusion Community last Sunday or a couple Sundays ago. The response was um, surprising. A lot of people were impacted. Um, apparently the conversation about this story has continued beyond me. And so um, I want to be able to share my journey through really mysticism. Um, so it's a spiritual story and I think that you'll be able to relate to some things in here and some things may surprise you. Um, but that's all I've been all these years. It took me a long time to put language to the fact that I am a true blue mystic. Um, so I'm gonna talk a little bit about what that is and I'm going to talk about my experience through spiritual gifts, which has been part of my mystic path. Um, so I guess I'll leave, leave it there and I'm going to just read the story to you that I read to inclusion community. So let's just start this way. I would like to define what mysticism is for you. Mysticism in its most simple definition is known as becoming one with God, the absolute, the infinite. It can include states of ecstasy, and altered consciousness, which is given spiritual meaning. And it also refers to the attainment of divine insights, hidden truths, and the process of human transformation into higher and higher levels of awareness. All mainline religions, including Abrahamic and Indian faiths, have mystical sects that do not circumvent extraordinary mystical experiences or states of mind but regard them as central tools of our ability to know God. So in international indigenous Native American and folk cultures, and also in New Age spirituality, where shamanism still thrives um, and practices that um, are shamanistic in nature, mysticism is the way of knowing God. Unrelated mystical cultures all over the world experience the same exact phenomenon, which has led science, philosophy, psychology, sociology, and theology to take the study of mysticism very seriously. Like many of the direct revelations in the Holy Bible, mysticism often involves revelations and initiations into gnosis, or knowing, sometimes through purification. So this might be seen in something like fasting, uh, which we do see in the Holy Bible and also in other religions, um, including Islam. Um, sometimes through plant medicine, which um, religious saints and ascended masters, um, including Jesus, were said to have partaken of. 
sometimes through rites of passage, and sometimes through the use of spiritual gifts. So there is a quality of universalism to mysticism, meaning that all religions are essentially the same, that all ideas and versions of God are essentially manifestations or symbols of the whole, and that the oneness that we desire is actually oneness within our, ourselves, where we can absolve the boundaries between our ego selves and our souls and the walls that our definitions of God put around us. Mysticism is about a highly personal relationship with the divine. And this is within and outside of the parameters of any religion. It's often without the need for intermediaries. Though it does believe in the co-collaborative relationships that we each have with countless energies, souls, and facets of a largely unseen universe. At its core, mysticism is about understanding the meaning of existence and uniting with God through the heart. It's about seeing through the heart. It's about hearing through the heart and sensing through the heart in order to access the truths that are just below the surface. So in mysticism, the emphasis is on feeling. It's on intuitive insights. It's on examining the essence of the world that is beyond appearances. And it has really the primary goal of personal transformation, not just the experience of mystical and visionary states, although those are often part of the journey. The goal really of mysticism is one of true loving, of transformational union with the sacred. And that is really the true indicator of an authentic mystical path. So that is how I would define mysticism in short. There are some wonderful books on mysticism that I will share in the notes of our show. But that will help set the stage for this story um, that I'm going to tell about my own life. Um, I feel that one of the things that is unfortunate is that sometimes it takes us a long time to get language around who we are and what and how we operate and what we believe in. And without that language, sometimes we don't realize that there's all these people that have gone before us and there's actually a path that is shared around the world and that um, there's actually a lot of kindred souls who are on that same path with us. And so um, it took me well into my 30s to begin to understand that um, mysticism was really my way. And once I was able to put words to that, I was able to see how I'd been drawn to that my entire life and that um, the books on my shelves and the um, interests that I have with uh, healing work and spirituality and what I'm drawn to in particular within different religions 
or traditions or um, or spiritual practices is all about this definition that I've get, just given um, regarding mysticism. So before I tell this story, <clears throat> let me start with this quote. Um, I've carried this quote for at least 15 years. Um, when I was in college, we were required to read the book Night by Eli Wiesel, who is a Holocaust survivor. And this quote um, imprinted on me at 18 years old. There are a thousand and one gates leading into the orchard of mystical truth. Every human being has his own gate. We must never make the mistake of wanting to enter the orchard by any gate but our own. To do this is dangerous for the one who enters and also for those who are already there. So I'd like to tell you the story of my mystical journey through spirituality and religion. When I was in middle school, my father reunited with his cousin, an eccentric uh, person living in Colgate, Oklahoma, on the same land that my grandfather's coal mining family originally claimed in America, which bordered the Choctaw Indian Reservation. Jimmy, a gay twin who had spent much of his life in New Orleans, was a school psychologist and also a psychic medium and tarot reader. Quite a different character from my all-business father. I had the opportunity to meet Jimmy when I was 15. He laid out his tarot cards for me at my father's kitchen table and said quite intriguing things, but most notably that I would have a blonde-haired son uh, everyone in my family for generations had been strictly brunette. And that I had a gift I didn't know about yet. Of course I was mesmerized by this. I was 15 years old. So it delighted me when months later he sent me some books in the mail and they included my first books on astrology and also a leather-bound French copy of Charles Baudelaire's The Flowers of Evil one of the most notorious volumes of poetry ever written, uh, which also included Baudelaire's beliefs about the beautiful and mysterious dark side of God. I took these books as signs pointing the way to the mysterious gift that he had mentioned, which he was not at liberty to reveal to me at that time. So I just became a well-studied young astrologer. Over time, I was so skilled at my astrological astrological knowledge of the signs that in my bartending years people would bring their friends in from around downtown Charleston to sit with me at the bar where I could guess their signs with about 90% accuracy after only about a 30-minute conversation. I took great pleasure in seeing how freaked out people became by this, how skeptical others became, and how this simple bar trick increased my tips. It really was a good way to make extra money. 
But mostly I use this knowledge to understand people. The way that we use psychological personality profiling tests, like the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator Test, or our beloved Enneagram, which seems to be the popular uh, test today. But I'm jumping ahead. Let me take you back to where the gates really opened for me. I was 18 years old and enrolled at Appalachian State, suffering one of the worst bouts of my ongoing clinical depression that I'd ever had. I was flunking out of App State by this point, having chosen the college primarily because it was featured in High Times Magazine, which in case you don't know is all about marijuana. So needless to say, academics were not my focus, um, unfortunately for um, my father who was footing the bill and for my relationship with my father. But living in this bubble of sort of second generation hippies who were attracted to App State for similar reasons, my favorite drugs of choice during those years were psychedelics. There was one point where I was using them several times a week with this large group of strange and genius misfits that I ran around, I ran around with. You might be asking, why psychedelics when they were sort of like past their prime? Well, psychedelics opened me to a level of uninhibited joy and wonder and really just hysterical laughter that was incomparable to anything else. I wanted to be free, and that's what I felt when I was tripping. So acid and mushrooms, they just expanded my reality beyond its former limits, which was sometimes terrifying and dangerous, but mostly it was like glimpsing into the secrets of God and the magnificent, pulsating, glistening, and teeming universe that goes largely ignored by most of us in our day-to-day. -day. The other effect that doing psychedelics had on me was that combined with other drugs, they impacted me chemically in ways that made my depression turn from functioning to fairly non-functioning. With the right spiritual support, as was found by some of the early proponents of early psychedelic use, like Timothy Leary, uh, Ram Das, and Krishna Das, who are mentors to me today, um, and the rest of the Ivy League crew of academics who, you know, were kind of in that group and eventually became followers of um, a Hindu guru named Baba. I may have not fallen down that slippery slope, but no, you know, I didn't have um, that same spiritual lifesaver that they did at that time. So <clears throat> I wasn't the first to experiment with psychedelics, and certainly many had used that tool um, spiritually, but for me, it really was just a way of escape. So chemically, um, I was a mess, and my college roommate placed a simple but really life-changing book on my bed pillow one day, um, and it was called Succulent Wild Woman, um, written entirely in magic marker by an author named Sark, Susan Ariel Rainbow Kennedy. 
This book revealed one of the most pivotal insights that would ever come into my life. And that was that there was a growing community of people around the world who were talking about healing work as a way of being and living. They were talking about all the things that, that a depressive never knew anyone was talking about publicly, much less being in community around. And they rejected perfectionism and they rejected having all the answers and they rejected steamrolling over our fears and our feelings and hiding our personal and painful past under the rug. So I was floored by this because um, I wasn't really allowed that way of being from my paternal figure. So what I did was that I read as many books as I could from the resources that were listed in the back of her books. Um, I followed the breadcrumbs to other healing authors and then I read their resources too. And so slowly I began to replace a life of fairly mind-numbing and heart-padding consumption with one of substance and healing and creative expression. So I took a break from school and what I did was I planted and tended flowers and vegetables out of my rental house that looked um, down into this mountain valley. I played with paint and other craft and art forms. I started experimenting with guided meditation at the local metaphysical bookstore. And I began talking to other self-destructive friends about this healing world that I was finding. And then I passed the books and teachings along to them. I ended up taking a world religions class at App State that would lead me to this Buddhist monastery that was off the Blue Ridge Parkway where a monk would explain to us why, along with other ancestors on his altar, that Jesus's smiling face greeted us on the temple wall when we walked in. After an especially rigorous sitting and walking meditation while eating Japanese plum jello that he'd smuggled in from the Far East, he explained his love for Jesus, for the Jesus that he grew up with. And I was really struck by the permission to love things that appeared on the surface to be opposites, that appeared to be unrelated and these archetypal paradigms that I just didn't think could be crossed. So that planted that seed inside me. Then I went home for the summer and I tried to reconcile a personal perspective that was changing so dramatically that when I was in my hometown of Myrtle Beach, I just felt like I was an alien who had landed on the wrong planet. Um, nevertheless, I got a summer job. I sat on the beach alone and I read a lot of spiritual literature. And then this happened. I was sitting on the beach one day and just filled with a level of gratitude and awareness that was so vast that it made me cry. And I was watching children run up and down and the waves coming in and you know the birds doing their beach bird things. And my vision of the whole world 
like literally out of my eyes. My vision of the whole world shifted over about two or three degrees. I really don't know how to explain it any other way. Um, but it's kind of like if you were looking out of both of your eyes and you closed your right eye and just took a look in front of you out of your left eye and then immediately switch and close the left eye and look out of the right eye and you'll notice when you go back and forth that way that your perspective changes almost like the object in front of you is moving So I'll give you a second to try that because it's very, um, that awareness of the world appearing as if it shifted a couple degrees over, that's what happened to me in that moment, except that it was permanent. What also happened with that shift was that I received an understanding that I would never be the same person that I was before that moment that I would be a different version of me that the world and, and the world would would appear different to me too from that point on. I was also told by a higher presence right there sitting in my beach chair that I would never have depression ever again at the life consuming level that I had had it before. So it was like I was visited by grace. And during that visit, I was not only freed from something that I believed would take my life one day, this depression, but I was also gifted with a new perception of the world that would forever change my relationship with it. When people in spiritual communities talk about awakening, I guess you can say that this was my awakening. And it was an awakening from a life that had been full and wonderful in many ways, but had also been a kind of like sleeping at the wheel. And then, not too long after that, this happened. One night that summer, I had a dream that an old farmer approached me in a field and I stood in front of him and uh, in my overalls, we both had on overalls, and I handed him a gift for my overalls, which was a gift of two sickly dried up ears of corn. And so this farmer like chuckled and in return, um, he pulled from his overalls two plump, yellow, healthy ears of corn. So it was a trade, and not exactly a fair trade, but a trade nevertheless, one that I was coming out on the better side of. And then in the stream, all my wisdom teeth fell out, just right there standing in front of him, and new ones grew in. And so this, this meeting in my dream was quite profound, and it left me thinking about it when I woke up in bed. That morning, uh, my parents had gone away for work, and yeah, I kind of shuffled into our kitchen, sat down at the table where my stepfather's morning paper laid. So I picked up the paper, and I looked over the pages, you know, kind of sleepily, just, just 
you know, not even thinking about what I was doing. And then right there on the front cover of the Sun News, there was a huge photo of two ears of corn. One corn was sickly and dried up, and the other was plump and yellow and healthy. And so the article was about the effects of weather on the summer's corn crops. And of course I went bananas. <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? Um, so I called my mother at work and, you know, obviously very excited explaining the whole scenario. You know, she didn't have time for my story. She needed to get back to work. But this would be the first of many things that would happen for me that were beyond standard rationalization. Later that fall, my father took me to Oklahoma um, where his cousin Jimmy lived. He'd, he'd once promised to take me there um, to visit the family land where our graveyards are located and where the properties are filled with furniture that has our last name carved in it, you know, because the first generation there had made it with their own hands. So this land was very significant. And it was land that my father um, grew up visiting as a boy. It was, it was the home of his grandparents. So on this land, there are two houses that face each other at the end of a long dirt road, kind of on the plain. Um, and one of the houses is the original homestead, which once belonged to my father and Jimmy's grandparents. At the time of our visit, Jimmy lived in this old house. His aging mother uh, lived in the house directly across um, kind of the, the patch of, of land where the homes were. And that home where she lived was built in the 1960s. So when it was time to decide which house my father and I would sleep in, my father stated that he wouldn't be sleeping in Jimmy's house. <clears throat> you know, and I was just kind of um, witnessing this conversation or sort of a part of it. And so I said, well, why not? And so then a conversation ensued about how every cousin who's ever stayed there was visited at night by the deceased grandparents Heath. Um, for Jimmy, this was normal and also very entertaining. And for everyone else, it, it was um, really just like an unrecoverable spook fest. I mean, nobody wanted to be a part of that <laughs> and had, had been a part of it um, just by default um, in the years, you know, in their teenage and, and, and young adult years. So me being someone who still slept with the covers over my head at 19 years of age, um, due to what I now know as a sensitivity to the spirit world, I wasn't about to sleep over there either. So I chose the newer house and when night fell um, off to sleep, I went on a couch that was beside this old potbelly stove just outside of the kitchen. Well, I woke up in the middle of the night and looked across the room into this kind of dimly lit kitchen doorway. And standing there in that light was a man of my father's stature in old work overalls, leaning against the door frame with a kind, 
uh, a kind look on his face, and his face was familiar. Um, but I was aware that this man was not alive. So my heart began to race out of my chest, and I, I really started sweating myself into a fever. I could not move. I could not look away. And then, just when I thought it could not get any more terrifying, <laughs> he audibly said these two sentences to me. We've been waiting on you. How do you like it here? Uh, and then he walked from the doorway to the edge of the sofa. Uh, the foot of the sofa. So I didn't wait there to find out what happened next. Uh, I flew off that sofa and <laughs> ran into my, you know, the room where my father was sleeping. Um, he never truly woke. He helped me make a spot on the floor beside him. You know, he kind of was half asleep. And then um, I just nestled in and went to sleep. In the morning when I opened my eyes, you know, I was like thanking God that the sun was up because the sleep that I had 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 been uh, obviously shaken from what happened and fitful. And, but when I finally did fall asleep, you know, it wasn't much longer the sun was up and I heard my father in the kitchen talking to his aunt over coffee. So I wandered in there and there was no mention of the commotion I'd caused the night before. So I'm sitting there thinking, did my father not remember me telling him what happened? You know, what's going on? Why, why is nobody mentioning that? So I started to second guess myself. But after a while of, you know, this, this kind of nighttime horror being completely ignored, um, cousin Jimmy came in the door in his robe, you know, with his smoker's cough and his coffee cup. <laughs> and without me even looking up at him, he said, they came to see you last night, didn't they, girl? And he laughed and laughed, you know, and of course my mouth was to the floor. But finally it was the acknowledgement uh, that I needed. And we pulled out old family photo albums to kind of figure out who the man was. And it was my great-grandpa Heath, perhaps, um, could have been Jimmy's father uh, based on his size. But all I knew is that things were getting really weird uh, in my life. So when I returned to Boone that year, I had sort of opened my channel. Um, and that's what I would call it today. I didn't have the language for that then. But through focus and study of the, of the metaphysical world uh, that had been initiated originally by meeting Jimmy at 15, I was what you'd call very open. So I was working at Woodlands Barbecue in Blowing Rock at the time. Um, by the way, one of the best jobs I've ever had. And when the winter came, there was always a good heavy snow. Um, so in February, the snow might not cause us to actually close, but a night service might only include a few customers who had braved the weather. There were some locals that, you know, always came to the bar. 
So one night I was stationed at our downstairs dining room leaning against one of those pull-out cigarette machines that we all used to love. And I know you remember those. Um, I was watching the big screen TV uh, in the back corner of that downstairs area. But also I was able to, um, I was at the bottom of the stairs so I could see up to the front door to the top of the stairs. And I was just hoping for some customers so that I could make a few bucks. Finally, a family of four came in, and they made their way downstairs. I watched them descend for a minute. So it was a mom and a dad, and a boy of about four or five years of age, with his sister, who was just old enough to come down the stairs um, if she, on her own, if she was holding on to someone like her brother, which she was. So I went into the server's area to grab some beverage napkins, uh, a pen and paper so I could take their order. And when I came back into the dining room, the mother and son had taken their seats at the long picnic tables. The little girl was wandering back towards the hallway, which um, turned a corner to the restrooms. And the father gave me his drink order quickly and then he walked back after her so I took the mother's drink order and the little boys, and then I asked her if she wanted anything for her daughter, you know, since parents sometimes pack their own sippy cups or whatever. And she looked up at me just blank-faced. The color drained from her. And we had this really awkward pause. And then she said, we don't have a little girl what? I didn't understand. I began fumbling. I'm so sorry. I, I don't know. I'm not sure. I, I, I thought, never mind. I'm sorry. I, I don't know what's going on with me. You know, like this is what I'm saying to her. And then I just scurried away. Before I reached the service station around the corner, she belted out. We had a little girl, but she passed away. Okay, so I'm not put, putting two and two together. I'm thinking this is just strange. Why does she even just tell me that? Like TMI, like what else could I say? I just said, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And then nothing else was said. I came back out, I delivered their drinks, I took their dinner order. The father had, of course, returned from the bathrooms and the little girl had not. So as they ate, I sat out back. I chain-smoked cigarettes, because <laughs> that's what I used to do then. Uh, and I pondered the absolute, tangible, visible aliveness that was the second child coming down the stairs and into the room. You know, I could have touched her. She was so solid. So when it was time to deliver their check, I just I made a bold move. I was compelled by something beyond myself. And I wrote them a note on the back of their ticket, which read, I'm supposed to tell you that your little girl is in a good place and she's still with your family. I laid the check down and I ran away to my smoke, smoking spot so that I could avoid, you know, what could have been a potential assault of a couple that might be religious in a way that, that forbids this type of interaction. Um, you know, I just envisioned them turning the corner and shouting in my face, like, who do you think you are? So 
they left. They went upstairs and paid their bill at the registers up top and left quietly. And I went home with my most jolting so-called paranormal experience as a budding clairvoyant. Two or three months later, it was spring, and we were slammed at Woodlands Barbecue for lunch uh, in Blowing Rock. Everyone is, was in the mountains to see the flowers. And a woman popped up out of her seat and came barreling towards me. She said, are you Kendra? Are you Kendra? You know, and I was kind of taken aback. I said, I'm Kendall. She said, oh my gosh, I've come in here looking for you a couple of times. I'm the woman who was in here in February with my husband and son. The one who left you left the note to? And I thought, oh God. And she said, you know, when you get a chance, we'd love it if you'd come talk to us. I thought, oh Lord. So I said, sure. So when all the crowds died down, they were still there waiting. And I went over. And after a bit, she said... Well, we, we just want for you to know that that note meant so much to us. Uh, we put it on our bedroom mirror where we can see it every day, and it really comforts us. And so, you know, I said something like, I'm so glad, you know. And I also told her, I said, this doesn't happen to me often, so I can't tell you much more. She said, you know, that's okay. She said, I just... I just wanted to tell you um, something else. She said, a couple weeks after we ate here, I was in a business meeting in Catawba County, and a Native American man who was in the meeting pulled me aside afterwards to ask me if I'd had a daughter who passed because he saw her climbing all over me during the meeting. So, yeah, that was a woe for me. That was a big jaw dropper. Even though, it, even though <laughs> I was the clairvoyant, um, it was a big confirmation. So the door was opened, and I thought, um, I guess this was the gift that my cousin Jimmy was holding out on all those years ago. So what does a young woman do who comes into um, this type of spiritual gift, not in childhood, at least not in consciousness in childhood, but a little later when life is still kind of like dramatic. Um, yeah, I would say that age is kind of dramatic. Well, <laughs> what I did was I read every single book that Montel Williams, if you remember that talk show, every single book that his psychic, Sylvia Brown, who used to come on there, I, re I read all her books. Um, and you might be laughing, but I can honestly say that no matter what you think of her, she's actually quite legit. So um, she's also a devoted Christian, which I think is very interesting. But um, I read everything that she wrote, and that really informed me about worlds that were beyond our world. That was my introductory um, to um, the realities that mediums are privy to. The other thing that I did is I learned all about the facets of spiritual gifts. So I, I was a seer with my actual eyes, and I was sometimes, you could hear, um, and I also was a feeler. So in other words, some different things that would happen to me. Um, one night I might, uh, one night in college, 
uh, in Boone, I would see a teenage boy in 70s bell-bottom pants and a plaid shirt cross the hall from one bedroom to another while I was talking to my roommates. Um, and for me, that vision would always be really solid, like there was an actual um, other person in the house that we didn't know about. Um, another day, I, I would go to work, um, again, at this barbecue restaurant with this huge pain in my chest. And I would be griping and groaning the whole time before we opened the restaurant uh, about how just something was really off and how heavy and tight my chest felt. I think I even called my mother, you know, because the feeling was worrying me. It was so intense. And not 20 minutes later, we would open the doors to the restaurant and we would be packed within, you know, 30, 45 minutes. And one of our first customers would have a massive heart attack right there in our main dining room where I was waiting tables. And that feeling would instantly fly out of my chest like a bird when it happened. And the bartender there would say, you nailed it. And I would say that's exactly what, that was the premonition that was happening in my body. I was taking on an experience that was about to happen in my presence. Um, I was also a dreamer. And for many of you who are listening, um, you know, dreaming is a, a state where many spiritual gifts are acted out. The veil is lifted in dream state, and our ego just doesn't stop us as fervently from crossing those usual borders. So for Claire gifted people or any person, I just want you to know that a lot of work gets done in that plane. It's an actual functioning energetic plane of reality, um, not just a component of the psychological brain. So even though in psychology we understand dreams one way and they do have that component to them, um, they are actual an actual plane of um, reality just like the life that we have here on earth. So there's a lot of stories there to tell. Um, but I, I, I'm not going to go into those, but I do just want to say that it is a very common opening point for spiritual gifts for many people. Um, another example of kind of this medium, um, spiritual gift that, that would grow in me is that one night while living in Boone, which by the way, Boone, the Boone area of the Appalachian Mountains is an energetic vortex of, of a certain type. And there's a, there's a lot of information about um, the energy that those mountains contain. So I would recommend that you read about that because I was a, that location was really essential, I think, to my opening process. But one night in Boone, I would wake up in my bed and I would see two beings that were standing uh, with their backs to me in the doorway of my bedroom. And they were looking into the room of one of my roommates. I would be given the understanding of who they were and what they were doing. And so this was my first angel sighting. Um, what I can tell you about angels is that they emit a very distinct light that's not the same as any other light. <coughs> the angel that I was able to um, see, knew that I could see it, and acknowledged me just with a peaceful turn of the head. There was a second being that was with this angel that looked of African descent. Um, and it's funny because, 
I didn't say this whenever I spoke this in inclusion community, but <laughs> it actually looked like like an African-American person who was like from the 70s or 80s. It was really funny. But um, I was given the information that, that this was an angel in training and that they were not... Um, this that second angel kind of flickered in and out of my view like the connection wasn't very strong like there was static and so that's that was the knowledge that was given to me but I was also told that they weren't there for me they were there for my roommate um, who was pregnant at the time and did not know it and I don't know if she ever knew it I never I never um, inquired into that personal detail of her life so um, they were there for her. So <clears throat> she didn't end up having a baby, if, in case you're wondering. She did not. But <clears throat> So many things would happen during my 20s um, regarding what my husband calls like this tight connection with the spirit world, um, including intermittent interactions with my own deceased grandmothers and other psychic mediums calling me out in places like the Lanus Resort in the Bahamas. Um, or other psychic mediums, you know, that I would be in conversation with who we'd be talking about something different. And then they would say, you know, you really are um, gifted. You really have, um, are very intuitive. You, <laughs> they'd try to find ways to tell me. Um, but there's not enough time to tell you all of these fun and sort of occasionally disturbing stories of this aspect of my journey. But here's the thing about all of this. Outside of metaphysical community and spiritual community, uh, people are not very comfortable with this. Um, I'm always kind of amazed that in Christian communities that are progressive, that even though there are spiritual gifts throughout the Holy Bible, um, and probably the, the same thing in, um, you know, the, Isla the uh, Islamic uh, religion and in many religions. Um, even though the sacred text will talk about spiritual gifts, um, it's just often downplayed. So it surprises me at how much a part of uh, spiritual lineage and story um, that these are and yet we're just not comfortable going there so what my what I witness is that we don't usually believe what we ourselves don't experience or can't see um, and in many religious traditions you know unless you're sitting in the pews of like a Pentecostal church or in mystical communities maybe in Indo-Asia or native and tribal communities who still convene with the spirit world to this day, um, we just really have some really odd biases um, against spiritual gifts like this. And so <clears throat> while it's a relief to me that metaphysical community um, has held on to this, um, you know, it does sadden me that we've lost that in many mainline religions. So... <clears throat> What does someone who wants to be taken seriously in suburban America do with all of this? 
Um, I think that mostly we just tuck it away until it's safe not to. Um, I think that we turn it off or we keep it quiet or we only talk about it with people who we think will not shun or dismiss our truth. Um, and those people are often the ones who are in those metaphysical and spiritual communities. So that's, that's where I went over the years um, because the ceiling was lifted on how I could explore God and also do it through my own lens. Um, even having said that, though, there are many people in spiritual community who there's just a level of skepticism, um, probably due to so many charlatans over the years. Um, but there's a level of skepticism that is sometimes hard to surmount. And, and even with some of my closest and most open friends. So even still, um, you know, having these gifts, I spent much of my 20s and 30s turning this side of me on and off. Um, even though I had metaphysical community, it just depended on how I was having to survive in my personal life or my work life. Um, sometimes I let it go altogether because I was consumed by the usual stresses of becoming somebody in the world or trying to fit in, which is huge. Um, or trying to figure it all out. But what I also kept doing was I kept studying. I became a student of the divine. And I stayed enamored with the endless expression of that mystical relationship um, that happens for individuals and uh, very spiritual communities all over the world. What I also realized early on was that the spiritual journey is absolutely entangled with the healing journey. I don't think one can happen um, without the other. So I also committed to understanding psychological and spiritual healing. Um, for me, much of my healing has been around traumas that are experienced by women. Um, and those traumas are things that make women feel less than or um, make women feel they have to conform to inauthentic expectations or become separated from um, our own innate power. Um, it also has to do with a term that I call spiritual abuse. Um, and I think spiritual abuse is rampant for all of society. I think it is... Um, the worst abuse that we know today um, on this planet. So the healing work that I have chosen to follow as, a, as an, also an area of study um, opened me in tr when I was living in Charleston to another pivotal moment for me in my life, which was the discovery of the divine feminine. Um, when I was in my mid-twenties, I was enrolled by a friend of mine into this life-changing, um, kind of in-your-face breakthrough coaching program at a place called the Legacy Center in Raleigh, North Carolina. And that center still exists today. I believe it's called just Legacy, so you can find that online. 
but I participated in one of their smaller programs. Um, but it was it was truly groundbreaking for me. And I came back from that and built this empowered women's community around myself um, that had the goal of trying to get women around me who were young, who were kind of enmeshed in the bar scene, to step out of that and connect with themselves uh, more truly. And I also called up the Sophia Institute in Charleston to be a volunteer intern. So the Sophia Institute is another place you can Google. Um, it is a retreat center that offers programs in the study of sacred feminine consciousness. I didn't really know what I was getting into. I was in my mid-20s. I was working in the restaurant industry. Um, I was still living a pretty unhealthy lifestyle. But I felt led to this place that does this work in the divine feminine. So when I arrived there, I learned that the writer-in-residence was Sue Monk Kidd, who wrote The Secret Life of Bees. Um, and she's written several things after that. But you've probably, if you haven't read the book, you may have seen the movie. But I picked up her book, The Dance of the Dissident Daughter, um, which was the story of her life as this good Christian woman and this pastor's wife who found these hugely significant holes in Christianity um, regarding women's place and women's stories um, and the, 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 the Christian woman's narrative and um, women's treatment in Christian religion. Um, and I was stunned by her truth-telling, especially in our conservative South. So I just felt like I could breathe again when I read her words, which I thought were very brave. And although I was not a part of Christian community, I had really um, left that as a, as a preteen. Um, you know, I had made some peace with it. And to hear somebody talking about everything that had been silenced or omitted or not even noticed by men and women in every Christian community that I had ever been in or near was huge for me. So, while I was interning, I attended a talk that Sue Monk Kidd led on the Black Madonna figurines that were hidden in the basements of cathedrals and other ruins um, throughout Europe. And I thought to myself, oh my God, what else have they hidden from us besides the goddess that just will not die? So for me, it was a resurrection of the goddess, you know, an awareness of what, what the attempt to hide something and, um, and it just, it wouldn't stay below the surface. So as if the New Testament class that I'd taken in college hadn't already shocked my socks off at how the Bible was voted on and put together in the most political way ever, this was my second big row with getting down and dirty with the lies and deceptions of Christianity. Um, but aside from that angst, you know, it was also my point of reconnection with this feminine God, this feminine aspect of God that I had been almost entirely consciously separated from in this lifetime. The metaphysical communities um, which have never let go of the divine feminine 
and hang on to the goddesses with ferocity had not even touched the deception of this so clearly and I just wasn't willing to abandon this knowledge ever again so that became a very central part of my life around that same time I took an Eastern cultures class that opened me to Taoism and Hinduism uh, Jainism Confucianism more Buddhism Shinto things like that and when Krishna Das uh, an American vocalist who's known for his Hindu devotional music it's a type of music called Kirtan uh, when he rolled through Charleston a friend another friend of mine who was heavily involved in the yoga community um, took me to that experience with Krishna Das and I just had this ecstatic tearful joyful just song filled experience with God and all the people there that I'll never forget so the mystical world just kept opening and opening but then um, from my mid to late 20s life really happened to me <laughs> um, it spiraled really I went through that last push of growing up and dealing with the outcomes of my love addiction which has been part of my story all along as well so that has been my primary addiction in life and it really wreaked havoc on uh, my whole world uh, I struggled through my first marriage and divorce a very destructive relationship immediately following the separation from my husband uh, single motherhood very single motherhood um, I had to make a safe escape to Charlotte uh, I had to make several safe escapes after that and then I had to rebuild myself as a woman working and trying to fix all the ills of my late 20s and early 30s um, including another relationship that would almost crush me with its kind of rock-bottom opportunities for growth and that happened right here where I live um, you know it's it's been several years but that was really my final um, descent um, so that I could have the opportunity to finally rise out of all that so my first step out of that was onto a yoga mat and the easiest way for me to get back to myself at that time was through the body um, and that's what I did I got into the quiet gentle grounding practice that is yoga um, that was a huge lifesaver for me at that time and so much so that I decided to train in vinyasa yoga to become a teacher during that training I had a dream one night that Patanjali uh, one of the fathers of yoga came to look at me face to face and said I wish I was a woman in your time because you women are changing the world that was a big thing for me and it reminded me of a dream that I'd had during a time in my life when I thought I was no good I really thought that I was that everything I had dreamed that I would be that I was completely opposite 
Um, and in that dream, a Buddhist monk had come out of a temple, um, you know, a Tibetan-looking monk, and had come out of a, a temple to look me directly in the eyes. And he kind of held my face in his hands, and he asked me, what do you see in my eyes? And I answered, the most exquisite goodness and kindness that I have ever known. And he said back to me, what you see in my eyes is what I see in your eyes. We are the same. And that was the healing of my belief that I was no good. So slowly, something returned, and it was my connection with me. And with that came my reconnection with the sacred. And so one night, almost exactly three years ago from today, at one point when I was seriously beginning to wonder if I would die from an actual heart attack from a broken heart. That's how much pain I had been in. I was lying in bed almost half half asleep, and I was told to be very still. And I was in that half-awake state before you really fall asleep. So I just lied there. And the part of my mind that was awake was very curious. And I was following the directions Um, that were being spoken to me by voices that were not my own but they were voices that I still remembered after all this time of really um, going through this enormous spiritual valley and then I felt the pressure and pull literally felt it of what seemed like sutures that were being sewn into my heart like invisible sutures and I had the awareness that an energetic surgery was being performed on me by actual angels. And I saw this clearly as they told me, we're putting your heart back together. And then I fell into a deep sleep and I woke the next morning with the weight of many, many years lifted off of me. And I still believe that without that angelic surgery that I would have died an early death in my life, whether it was, would have been already or just, you know, 10, 15 years from now from a heart that was too weak, that had been weakened by experience. So sometime after that angelic life-saving procedure, Um, When true love finally returned to my life in the form of my husband now, I was led to the um, very unconventional church that is Inclusion Community in Cornelius, North Carolina. And it was just by some words on a sign. Um, And I found a group of people there that were so authentic and so filled with genuine kindness and I found what I would say is Christianity or spirituality the way that Jesus might do it Um, 
By the time I ended up at Inclusion Community, I had made peace with Jesus. You know, I decided that the Christianity that I witnessed growing up was not the heart of Jesus's mission or message. So, uh, even though I was not a Christian and am not a so-called Christian by so many of the standards that I hear, um, this place inclusion community gave me permission to dialogue and to live in the questions and so I felt what was often called the Holy Spirit when I was growing up a term that I did not like I felt my version of that again um, it was that same feeling that made me cry rivers in church pews in my growing up years you know when I was rebelling against the religion but loving the figure at the center of it so I was given the language for progressive Christianity, um, which returned me to a study of ancient Christianity and religion, coincidentally, and that has absolutely nourished and matured me uh, and healed what I believe are lifetimes of religious unrest in my soul. Um, so still not a Christian and not necessarily a progressive Christian, um, but also not that. Also, not not that. <laughs> so, let me say this before I really talk about that. There was a psychic medium. There's a psychic medium who lives in Woodstock, New York, who we've had on the show before, um, named Aurora Gabriel. And Aurora has this really special place in my heart. I've spoken with her several times in my life, and... Last summer, she and I did a couple sessions together that um, were just beyond description and the insight that they provided me on a soul level. Years of therapy did not do what those sessions did for me. Um, you can find Aurora at VoicesOfDivineLove.com. Um, but something really significant happened for me in one of those sessions. Aurora said, those who support you, Kendall, on this side of the veil, they want to give you the opportunity now to recognize them directly by the way they each feel. Um, so, because I believe that the divine manifests itself uniquely in angels and guides and personalities of beings that are on the other side, just the same way that the divine manifests itself distinctly in each of us here on this side. Um, I was very open to this. And so Aurora said, they are going to step forward, these guides that are in your life and these ascended masters that are in your life. They're going to step forward one by one and they're going to give you time to sense their energy. And when they feel that you've identified who they are and what they feel like when they show up in your life directly, they're going to step back. And so each one began to step forward in this reading. And, you know, one felt very ancient and wise and soft. Um, I envisioned, I saw this person in my uh, medium mind, is what I call it. I saw this person as a Tibetan grandmother who is with me often. Um, another felt and looked in my medium mind like an Eastern master of some type. 
not very disciplined and focused, strict. Um, and so I would write these notes down as we did the exercise. And after each note that I wrote, Aurora on the phone would confirm exactly what I had written. She'd say, this guide works with you on discipline and your work, focus, intentions, you know, and she'd be talking about that Eastern master. Not, she had no idea of what I'd written on my paper. She's reading from her own medium reading. She knows who this is. So it went on like this as each of these ascended beings um, stepped forward to make connection with me in a conscious way. But then a presence stepped forward that was all-consuming. It was the most loving, compassionate energy that I have ever felt. And it was the kind of feeling where tears just like pour out of the corners of your eyes, like without control. Um, all of the other energies that were present in that reading, which we do over the phone, all the other energies that I'd experienced that day absorbed into this energy. It was like what I would call like an energetic umbrella, sheltering everything under its cover. And without me saying a word, Aurora said, Kendall, this is Jesus. Jesus works with you in partnership. Well, this stunned me because I had not expected Jesus to be this umbrella. I did not want Jesus to be, <laughs> be that umbrella. Um, because Jesus, Jesus and I had this odd history. I wasn't a Christian per se. And, you know, how I remember asking, how could all the other energies feel like they were absorbed by the all-consuming love of this one energy? Um, and plus, I didn't even feel worthy of a love like that. You know, it, it really was something I can't explain. So then this energy stepped back and another stepped forward. And this one felt almost the same, but just slightly different. And again, I had this very emotional reaction. And I was asked by Aurora, do you feel a slight difference between these two? And I'm thinking, oh God, she's reading my mind, which of course she is reading my mind. <laughs> I said, yes, exactly. I feel a slight difference. And she said, she said, Kendall, this is Mary. She said, they are the same. And when I say Mary, um, I'm saying Mother Mary. They are the same, except that Mary has a more feminine energy. Um, but they are the same, and she works directly with you, too. They want you to know, she said, that you're going to go through some mystical experiences soon, and that some of them may scare you, but that whichever one of the two of them that you feel most comfortable reaching for, that one will be there to guide you through. So what are those mystical experiences you may be wondering? Well, <clears throat> that part cannot come to fruition until I reunited with someone that I had not met again in this life. And that's my Spiritual Charlotte podcast co-host and co-founder of Lighthouse Spiritual Center, Debbie Chisholm. Um, it was through a reunion with Debbie's soul that my soul finally found someone who spoke my exact 
spiritual dialect. Um, and we'll go into spiritual dialect more later. But it allowed me to come out of the spiritual closet. Um, and it just reawakened that channel in me again. So for me now in my life, it has been um, just about no more hiding, which is why we were able, have been able to develop the work that we're doing um, together. So after initially finding Debbie um, through a women's Facebook event that, that she was hosting that appealed to me, um, I asked her to meet me for lunch, and we just began a friendship of spiritual exploration. One afternoon, uh, several months um, after our friendship started, she snuck in this information that during her morning meditations, she had begun speaking a language that she hadn't previously spoken, and it was something that was coming through her. Um, being a very open spiritual person, but also someone who, believe it or not, has very discerning faith. <laughs> I was not really sure about this. Um, I thought Debbie might be full of herself. I, I really did. I wondered if there was some ego coming into the picture. Um, I wondered if it was just speaking in tongues or something which, you know, had already been explained somewhere with the logical mind that we could go look up. Um... So I avoided asking too many questions for a while. But one day, Debbie just kind of blurted out, I've been told to share this with you. Let's, let's do it now. So I've talked about this before in a couple of our shows. Um, but I put a pillow kind of over my face <laughs> to, to hide any laughter or disapproving facial expressions um, that I might give. And I... I closed my eyes and I sat across from Debbie to witness this language. Um, but something really unexpected happened. And instead of laughing my ass off, um, I cried my eyes out. This language opened my heart like a flower that had been closed in a bud. Even though I had been doing spiritual work, it was a different level of opening and my heart recognized that language. So to my ears, it sounded like a mixture of Hebrew, um, Chinese, tribal tongues. Um, there was, you know, curling of the tongue and clicking and things in there that um, I didn't even know could come out of Debbie's mouth. But it was also something else entirely, and my soul knew it. And so I came back for more meditations with this language, and neither of us knowing what it meant, only that we knew how it felt, and it felt very healing, um, soothing, you know, meditative, and we never wanted the channelings to end. They were just so, they took us so deep into higher consciousness. And we told nobody because um, we know what most people would think. And so we told no one. But then something else happened um, that was most unexpected. And I realized that I could completely translate the messages that were coming through the language. This had something to do with Debbie and I speaking that, that same spiritual dialect, which we were told about through the translations and 
all of a sudden almost it was as if a portal in the right side of my brain opened and I was able to divide my personality self my ego brain from this tunnel in my brain that was able to translate the language um, I like to describe it to you that way because it helps to paint a picture so the messages that came through were so universal and so universally powerful they were beyond my intelligence there was no way they could come from me um, not with that level of eloquence I couldn't put that together that way even though I am uh, very good with language um, they were beyond me and so very privately we began to work with the language and through meditation and conversation and practice we worked and we worked and we worked and then we were given instructions through the translations and those instructions were things like you know the spoken language should be accompanied by a translator um, which is a lot like what we've heard in the Bible about tongues um, also that the translation is typically a different divine gift um, than the actual speaking so <clears throat> It may not include the ability to translate. One who can speak it may not be able to translate it. And uh, the instructions about that were that it keeps the channel for um, the one who is speaking the language very pure. So this sent us on a journey to understand the differences between tongues and this language, um, which we found out was called light language. And it is reportedly coming through individuals all over the world today. Um, we were then shown that we could also use the language to work with people one-on-one -on -one in readings that would connect them to personal insights, which are for their own journeys. So I guess that you can say when light language opened my heart memory, it reopened the psychic medium channel for me pretty wide. Um, many direct experiences, direct connective experiences with the other side and a strong intuitive knowing are incurring in my life again regularly as a result. So one of these experiences came through Debbie's best friend Joanne who passed away years ago um, but who was responsible for introducing her to the spiritual path and we've talked about Joanne on our show before. Um, but Joanne had really helped Debbie to awaken to her higher self. Joanne visited me in my home last spring um, while I was alone doing dishes. Um, so I had a medium experience with her where she walked into the room, she came into the room, and her spirit talked with me at my kitchen table. So I wrote down as many notes as I could. I actually wrote them over text and tried to see if I could send the information to Debbie while it was happening, which was kind of a hilarious moment, but um, it worked. And one of the things that her deceased friend Joanne said is that she wanted for us to look up St. Bridget. She talked about Ireland and she talked about us visiting Ireland and she wanted us to look up St. Bridget 
And then she disappeared out of my front door, which is not how they usually leave, by the way. <laughs> I don't think they need the front door. So I thought that was very entertaining. But, um, but anyway, when my channeling with Joanne ended, um, we Googled uh, the information about St. Bridget. And in a world that, you know, has become very symbolic to us because that's how we've learned the universe speaks. Um, Googling is our best friend, so we do that a lot. But what what was said about St. Bridget was really this, like, aha moment for me. Um, St. Bridget had many um, missions about her. She had uh, many things that are associated with her in terms of purpose. But one of her missions was of uniting the divisive cultures of her time that involved her pagan homeland and these and the early conquering Christian empires. And so she had this mission to act as a bridge. And little did I know until late that same afternoon that I had been holding on to a St. Bridget um, medallion for like a decade without any knowledge of its meaning. It had been gifted to me. Uh, years ago, and Debbie had been holding on to one that her mother, to a St. Bridget's cross that her mother had given her before passing away um, without any knowledge to its meaning either. So we made these connections later that afternoon as we went rummaging through some of our things. So this whole journey for me um, has just been one of being a bridge. It's like a reweaving of the fabric of God back together. You know, I've told some of these stories today just to illustrate to you that we can pull these very specific stories out of a mystical experience. Although a mystical experience is really like a river that runs within, beneath and in between and amongst everything. There are... Um, kind of these pivotal moments in the journey that sort of up-level us to a, to a new understanding or a next level of awareness or a different um, uh, way of being or a, or a different level of consciousness. And it's a process of not ignoring these things and not um, blazing past them, but beginning to understand that this is how the divine speaks constantly. And, and it just requires our noticing. So the spiritual life of so many people has become, you know, just severely unraveled by empires and religions and, and even spiritual uh, people and cultures who follow these, these doctrines. And it's my feeling that people just haven't been able to see how symbology and language or lack of symbology and language is really the only thing that separates us from the core and consistent river of truth that is running beneath everything. This separation and piecing apart of the divine in all of its boundlessness and its mystical strangeness has to be healed back to itself. 
Matthew Fox, one of the great mystical theologians of our time, talks about how the coming of Christ is really a cosmic Christ. It's a Christ that lives within each of us. And I don't mean a Christ as in Jesus, the man. I mean a cosmic Christ that is within us. And it's reconciled when we reconcile all the pieces as having a legitimate place in the infinite possibility that is our creator, including the divine feminine, including the pagan and earth-oriented spiritualities, and definitely including all of the weird stuff. All of the boxes that we've made as individuals and civilizations have always touched a piece of the esoteric whole, but, but never actually the whole, and are therefore all pieces that are essential to their right times and places, but they're just pieces. I believe that we ascend through our understandings, that we come into new ones and then we outgrow them. We dive deeper into older ones, and we are matured by them. We look again at forgotten ones and are restored again to the bigger picture that we felt we had to hide within ourselves. So this is the work of my life. It's the work of Spiritual Charlotte and Lighthouse Spiritual Center and the new kind of church that I desire and am creating. Mysticism has to be about not worrying what people will think. Um, because if you hide you, you hide God. I am that I am. I am that I am. And the only name that I must answer to is child of God. The only call and confirmation comes from and returns to that. So on this path of mine, I'm not willing to avoid the weird in order to stay in relationship with a God who is too small for the God that is infinite. This is the path of mysticism and I will go whatever distance it takes me and to all the woo-woo things and all the sacred text and all the mysteries that are waiting so yes there are a thousand and one gates leading into the orchard of mystical truth and every human being has his own gate we must never make the mistake of wanting to enter the orchard by any gate but our own. To do this is dangerous for the one who enters and also for those who are already there. I wish you bravery on your spiritual journey. I wish you commitment but mostly what I wish you is that you will experience God from your heart and that you will do it your way. 
if you desire community where you can um, explore with freedom and um, live in the questions, I've mentioned some places here where you can begin to uh, research. And of course, we have an open door for you at Lighthouse Spiritual Center that opens July 1, 2017, in just a few days. Um, I hope that we will all um, look at mysticism together, uh, that we will look at um, all of the opportunities that are there for us on a path that is highly uh, individual. Um, but also uh, unbelievably universal. And um, that's just the beginning of the conversation. So today was an especially long show, an hour and a half. Um, and that was so that I could share the story. Some of, some of my community missed hearing the story. Um, certainly I'm outing myself um, for some of the medium gifts that I have kept on the down low. But I feel that I've been called again to use those to serve. Um, please join us at, uh, on Facebook at Spiritual Charlotte. That's our Facebook page, Spiritual Charlotte slash Lake Norman. You can go to spiritualcharlotte.com to learn more about this labor of love that is just a project that we enjoy. Um, there is also an opportunity there where you can fill out a form if you'd like to be a guest on our show. You can learn about Lighthouse Spiritual Center at lighthousespiritualcenter.com. Um, I believe we're just now registering the site with Google, so you may have to do the HTTP, you know, get do the full address to, to find it easily. Um, you can also visit Lighthouse Spiritual Center on Facebook. Um, and anytime you want to message us directly, um, myself or Debbie Chisholm is always on the other end of that line. So we look forward to hearing from you. Um, please join us in the month of July on our podcast. We are going to have some exciting people on the show. Um, Pastor Joshua Scott should be finishing up his series with us Um here in the next couple episodes actually I can't promise that it could be July or August we have um, a powerful local shaman um, priestess uh, Robbie Warren um, who's going to be joining us on the show we have a whole queue of people that we're lining up to talk during the summer and fall so I'm not going to mention everyone I do want to mention um, Enneagram Charlotte uh, and, and Gary will be coming on the show and um, we're also headed to the Wild Goose Festival in Hot Springs, North Carolina where we're going to be hanging with all kinds of um, people who are living in the questions and um, trying to explore spirituality um, you know progressively in a Christian context but also outside of that context so it's a good time to be alive, and we appreciate everybody who uh, who's a part of the Spiritual Charlotte community. 
Thanks for listening. If you would like for me to come and tell uh, wonderful mystical stories to your group, <laughs> you can email me at kendall at Um You can also access me at spiritualcharlotte at gmail.com. Okay. Thanks for joining us, and we will um, revisit you next Wednesday.